Since the beginning of the year, we have been going through uh, John 13 through 17, chapters 13 through 17. It's an incredible piece of Scripture. It occurs there on that last night that uh, as Jesus is hanging out with his disciples and he knows that his death is coming and that he's going to be raised again from the dead, and he wants to give his followers insights on all that's taking place and prepare them for what's coming next. An important set of uh, chapters for us to take a look at is as we're also uh, thinking this year, what's next? What's next, God, that you would call us into? What's next? Well, we've taken those um, five chapters and divide them up into a number of sermon series. And this one we're currently in is called uh, uh, Departures and Arrivals. For it seems that in John's gospel, John chapter 14, really beginning up in 13, there are a number of places where Jesus talks about going and coming and sending and arriving and you can't come with me and, and these types of thoughts. And today what we're taking a look at is because I am going, because I am going. Before we get into our uh, discussion of that text, let's, um, I'd like to first give us, I don't know if it's as much a warning as, uh, as it is a clarification. From a classical biblical perspective, our text makes total sense. So from a biblical perspective, if we looked at all the teachings of Jesus, it would totally set up the passage we're going to look at. The warning or clarification uh, uh, has more to do with from a distorted, Americanized version of Christianity. A distorted, Americanized form of Christianity we can really struggle with understanding this text. There's a, a quote uh, in a book from uh, David Platt. David Platt's a, a pastor and an author, and uh, maybe you've um, uh, read some of his writings before. He, he, he wrote um, uh, this quote, I am convinced that we as Christ followers in American churches have embraced values and ideas that are not only unbiblical, but that actually contradict the gospel we, came, we claim to believe. He goes on later in the chapter and describes some of those values and uh, positions we hold. He says, somewhere along the way we had missed what is radical about our faith and replaced it with what is comfortable We are settling for a Christianity that revolves around catering to ourselves when the central message of Christianity is actually about abandoning ourselves. So in the Americanized version, we have created this experience where where Christianity exists that, that it caters to ourselves. Our whole church of experience is something that we design to cater to ourselves, whereas the Christianity of Jesus calls us to abandon ourselves. So where does... David Platt get off making these accusations? What's his foundation? What's the authority with which he claims these things? Well, it turns out to be the, the teachings of Jesus. We can look in these passages, John 12, 25, whoever loves his life. In fact, as we read these passages, listen to what Jesus calls us to love and what Jesus calls us to hate, all right? What Jesus calls us to love and what Jesus calls us to hate. John 12, 25, Whoever loves his or her life loses it. And whoever hates his life or her life in this world 
will keep it for eternal life. How about Luke 14, verse 26? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his or her own father and mother and wife or husband and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his or her own life, that person cannot be my disciple. Mark 8.34, which also has parallels in Matthew. If anyone would come after me, let that person deny himself and take up her cross and follow me. Did you hear it? That to love ourselves, to love this world, to love uh, even our own family members, that we're, we're called to have a different kind of love altogether for Jesus. In fact, when we look at the love we have for Jesus, the other things look like hate in comparison. Does Jesus want us to honor and respect our, our family members? Absolutely. Are we called to be good husbands and good wives and good parents and, 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 and all those things? Is there a model of behavior and respect that we're supposed to show one another? You know there is. The Bible teaches it. But when we compare that to the love and devotion we have to Jesus Christ, that it's not about us. So great is Jesus, and, and that our call to love him makes all of our other relationships in comparison look like hate. And by the way, this is nothing secret. This is a, a secret teaching that you're just getting insight on now. This is part and parcel of the gospel. This is throughout all the gospels. This is the teaching of God in Scripture. And it turns out it's not optional. It's not like we can go, you know what, I'm just good with Americanized Christianity. <laughs> this biblical stuff, I'm not a big fan. It's not an option. It's not like you can choose curtain A or curtain B. Jesus sets it up. Here's the relationship I offer you. Here's the relationship I call you into. This is what it means to believe in me. Let me make a confession then. These reminders from Scripture are absolutely for me. I need them. I suffer from having Americanized Christianity. If you were to, to look at my life and you go, and you took the, the biblical form of Christianity, the Americanized form, you would find evidence of the Americanized form of Christianity at work in my life. I need these reminders. Do you? You know, it's no surprise that, that we might need reminders like this. It, it seems that we have inherited a, a faith practice. And, and to the degree which we've inherited, we need help in being able to uh, confront what we've inherited and assess it not against what we like, not against the values of previous generations, but against Scripture itself. Not only have we inherited it, but we normalize it with each other. We show up, and, and because we look around at each other, we can go, well, that's normal. They're living the life I'm living, and, and so maybe I'll just normalize. And, and, and when we normalize, we reinforce it for each other, that the way of an Americanized or culturized form of Christianity, that just becomes standard. And once it's normalized, we can even become addicted to it. That this is the kind of Christianity we like. We want more of it. And we resist all efforts to move us from it. 
with this in mind and with an awareness that to the extent we have put aside the classical biblical form of Christianity and have instead embraced an Americanized version of the faith, to the extent that we have done that, our passage may be difficult, if not impossible, to understand. Nonetheless, let's jump into it. And maybe through this passage, we might choose through the grace of God to reject our Americanized Christianity and instead embrace Christ's own Christianity. If you have a Bible, let's go ahead and open it to our passage this morning. This is John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 12 through 14. Hear the word of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will that person do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. May God bless the reading of his word, and may God shine his favor on us as we come under his word today. All right, who would make your list of greatest scientists who ever lived? Albert Einstein? Marie Curie? Isaac Newton? Who would make your list of greatest painters? Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Artemisia Gentileschi, Baroque painter? Who would make your list of greatest soccer players? Would it be Diego Maradona or Pele or Lionel Messi? And if soccer is not your thing, if you go, I don't have a list of greatest soccer players, pick your sport. Who would make the top list? What if someone came along and said, you know what, you're going to have greater uh, insights on, on physics and chemistry than even these people. You're going to have greater uh, talents at art than even these people. You're, you're going to have greater skills uh, in athletics than even these people. Hard to, hard to imagine. And then Jesus comes along. And greater works you're going to do. What? So let's take a look at the passage itself. Let's look at verse 12. What what we first notice in this verse is that Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you. In, In all of 14 so far, he's drawing our attention to this spot. You need to look at this. Truly, truly, I say to you. It's like like a way of taking a highlighter, and and you just need to look at this spot. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, if you look at the actual grammar of uh, the verse, it says the one believing, the one believing. So it's this idea of ongoing belief, whoever it is. It doesn't say, hey, listen, you disciples, uh, you're going to do greater work than I am. Or, hey, listen, you apostles, or, or, or those of you with degrees, or, or those, with you, those of you who are freaky religious, you're going to do greater works than me. It says, whoever believes in me. In this term belief, we, we, we've talked about it before. In the culture, the, in our culture, we can think to believe in something is to acknowledge that it exists, that we believe 
But with, uh, in biblical terms, belief is, is something way more than that. In fact, we've, maybe we've even used this illustration before. But if we have a chair, I can say, and you've heard this, other pastors have used it before too, I can say, I believe that chair exists. I, to believe is just to say, I acknowledge that it's there. To trust it is something altogether different. I, not, not only do I believe that this chair can hold my weight, to trust it is to be willing to sit on it. And so when I sit on the chair, I, I trust. I don't just believe it. I'm trusting. I willingly sit on the chair. I put it into action. I don't just acknowledge it. I trust it. Whoever believes in me, whoever it is that believes in Jesus, will do greater works. Whoever believes in me. So he goes on to say, will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do. Maybe it might be helpful simply to pause here and recall the kind of works that Jesus did. And that might be helpful for us to understand what he means by greater works. Uh, Bruner in his commentary does a nice little list, and I just copied over his list. So here's what he says. He puts these on the top list of the things that Jesus did. Jesus reconciled the world to God. Jesus satisfied God's justice. Jesus defeated the, de- the devil definitively. Jesus carried away the sin of the world through his death. Jesus defeated death through his resurrection. Those are pretty big things. Those are fairly big things. And now he says, if we believe in him, we'll do greater works. What does he mean by this? Let's pause and just think about the example of Julia Child for a second. Because it draws our attention to this belief. You know, she has that book back in 1961. She published this book. She's a famous chef. Uh, Maybe you've seen the movie before, and this still dates back some time ago, but Julie and Julia. uh, The idea of Julia, who wrote the book of Mastering the Art of French Cooking. And there's like 524 recipes in there. And just think that, in fact, I, I read that one of the recipes is like three pages long, in, with, embedded in that are items that you're supposed to add, and they each have their own recipes elsewhere in the book. And what if it could be if just by believing in Julia Child, you could do greater recipes than she did? That, that, that just by believing in her. And this is what Jesus is saying, by believing in me, by trusting in me, by willfully giving yourself into me, you'll do greater things. So how is this possible? He helps us understand. He says, because I am going to the Father. Because I am going to the Father. So how does that help us? How does that change the whole situation? Maybe we can note these four things. One of them is, it's the end of the limitations of the incarnation. It sounds fancy, but it's not. So when Jesus, the Word who was in the beginning, who was with God, who was God, the Word became flesh and, and dwelt among us. So Jesus was limited in his exposure to people at that time. It was the people right around him. It, it, it was his disciples. It was the greater group of disciples. It was the, the Pharisees, and, and it was the blind person. And whoever he encountered, there was a limitation in how Jesus would be encountering the world because he was in the flesh. 
with his death and resurrection, those limitations end. He returns to that sovereign rule, the Lord of lords, King of kings over all things. With his death and resurrection, we'll find out next week that he's also sending his spirit in this wor- into this world to live in his followers. So the limitations of incarnation come to an end. The spirit will arrive. Then there's the deployment of the disciples. He's going to send the disciples out before all the, sti- all the disciples clung close to him. Not only the twelve, but it was all the other disciples. They were following him around. He sends them out into the world, in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, that they would make disciples of all nations. And to this list, then, we would also add that as he goes to be with the Father, he is interceding for us. So not only do we have the gift of the Spirit, not only are we deployed, not only are his limitations coming to the end of his incarnation, being here in this world, but he will continually intercede for us. And so scholars putting all this together, they help us understand, maybe you've already put it together, the greater works are not necessarily that we're going to, you know, Jesus, well, he walked on water. You've got to watch this. I can walk on air. <laughs> you thought that was something. It's not that kind of greater. It's not a greater in quality. It's a greater in quantity. It's this greater in scope that we would stand upon Jesus' shoulders and that we would do things that, that are beyond what he did, that we would go into places where he hasn't gone, that we would take what Jesus started in this world, and by his grace and through his power and the presence of the Holy Spirit, we would go into relationships that Jesus could never go into when he was here on earth. And greater things you will do. So what does this mean for us? Well, the first thing it means is let's not set this teaching aside Maybe you've already concluded, well, that can't be right. Let's not set it aside. Jesus intended this for us, for you. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever is believing in me will do greater works. Two things from this. Believing in Jesus, putting our faith in Jesus, trusting Jesus, depending upon Jesus, we, it uh, means that we are automatically called into his mission. It, it automatically has that association. To believe in Jesus means we're called into this work alongside him. I, I used to love skiing. Um, uh, and so growing up, I skied and skied in high school and skied in college. And, uh, and then I had responsibilities and I could no longer ski. Um, but here's something about skiing. When you go and you, and you go skiing, you get a lift ticket. You have to buy a lift ticket, but you get a lift ticket. The lift ticket means that you're going to go on lifts and go skiing. It doesn't, you don't buy a lift ticket to go sit in the chalet. You have a lift ticket so you can take a lift up and then ski down. Well, it turns out we don't have to pay for a life with Jesus, that Jesus pays that price for us, and we're given a lift ticket. Not to sit in a chalet but that we would be involved in his mission, doing his works, greater works, that we would stand on his shoulders. To believe in Jesus automatically means that we are involved in his mission. I think we can add to this that believing in Jesus means we will do meaningful and abundant works. Meaningful 
and abundant works. In fact, we could even say if we're not doing the works that build upon His works, then we're not practicing biblical Christianity. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. Not only that, greater works will that person do. Let's look at verses 13 and 14. He says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Have you already caught it in this passage where he goes, whoever and whatever? Again, there's no secret. It's not like, hey, if you do this just right, if you're in the know, if you know this secret handshake, it's whoever and whatever. Uh, I may have mentioned this in one of our conversations before, but growing up in California, one of the things you did as, as a senior in high school is you did grad night at Disneyland. So we lived 365 miles north of Disneyland. We piled all the seniors in a couple of buses and we drove down to Disneyland. And back in that day, this is a long time ago, so centuries, no, it was a long time ago, um, it was still when Disney was selling ticket books. And so for the average person who would come, they would have only so many e-tickets. Those were the fancy, fun rides, you know, the really exciting, the rides everybody wanted to go on. And then there were D tickets and C tickets and B tickets and A tickets. And A tickets were the ones like, well, if there's nothing else to do, we'll do that. Unless you're there for grad night. And at grad night, whoever shows up, who's ever part of the party, they can do whatever they want, whoever and whatever. And so Jesus is saying, listen, you don't have to have the right tickets. You don't have to be the right kind of Christian or you don't have to have certain degrees. He's saying, whoever you are, you're not going to be limited. Whatever you ask, I'm going to do for you. Whoever, whatever. Of course, then he says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. Here's where I believe Americanized Christianity really lets us down. If we look at a little bit of the history of uh, religion in America, uh, of, of Christian faith in America, it seems that there was this, uh, um, not necessarily calculated out, but a turning to a form of Christianity that is a me-serving Christianity. That Christianity exists to serve me. The development, this is really rough. This is just really shortened quite a bit. It'd be a much longer conversation. But it goes something like this. There was an emphasis on personal salvation. And we can see that's a good thing. We want, we want people to know Jesus Christ and, and, and not to be uh, um, lost into hell or kept out of a relationship with Christ. But, but we emphasize a personal relationship with Christ for the purpose of salvation. One of the things that took place because of that was this individualism in Christianity. Because now we're looking, listen, what, what Jesus wants is for you to be saved, and you to be saved, and you to be saved. In fact, we were so committed to that, we began to develop experiences that would tug on your emotions. That if we can create just the right context, just make you happy enough or sad enough or tweak your emotions just enough, you would say yes and convict, and, and you would say, yes, I believe and it's only about your personal salvation. So once you have that, you would simply check the box. And so we began with personal salvation, and we went to individualism, and emotionalism became a part of that. And that moves into consumerism, that we would have this consumeristic experience of Christianity. Now I'm going to go to a church that makes me feel good. 
I'm going to go to a church that sings the songs I like. I'm going to go to a church that has just the right kind of activities that I want to have. Personal salvation, individualism, emotionalism, consumerism. Let me give a couple of examples of that. So here's the Americanized version. God is good, so he should want good things for me. Right? That's kind of our view. Like, so if God is good, I'm going to pray good things. Of course, it's going to probably be based on what I think is good. And how, how would God argue against this? Because I feel that this is good. God is good, so of course he's going to want these good things for me. Whereas maybe, a, not maybe, a more biblical perspective would be God is total goodness and God therefore pursues his goodness for you and for me it's not a me-centered thing Christianity doesn't exist for me to consume it that God would serve my understanding of good for whatever I want but God is total goodness and therefore pursues his goodness for you and for me let me give another example. So Americanized version might be Jesus died to get me into heaven. That's not necessarily wrong, but it's not the full picture. Yes, through faith in Christ, do, do we get to spend eternity with Jesus? Yes, absolutely. But more biblical understanding would be that Jesus died to conquer sin in order to bring people into fellowship with God, not just you. It wasn't just the, that you would have this ticket to go into heaven, but that, that sin itself would be conquered and that through God's grace, people, a gathering, the body of Christ, would come into being in this world, that we would be able to live in fellowship with God. In other words, that, that people could enjoy an eternal relationship with God, serving his glory. That's a biblical fellowship with God in a relationship serving his glory. And then Jesus goes on to provide some further guidance. He says that the Father may be glorified in the Son. We talked about this just last week. Do you see how closely it's connected that the Father would be in the Son and the Son in the Father? And, and they're working toward this, this dynamic of, of mutual glorification that, that, that this whole thing's taking place for the glorification of the Son, the Father in the Son, and the Son in the Father. In fact, you might even go on to notice in addition, watch these words. So ask whatever you ask in my name, I will do. This is Jesus talking. If you ask it in my name, I will do it. And again in verse 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I will do it. Don't you love this relationship between Jesus and the Father? These aren't magical words. You don't have to go, I better start praying more to Jesus and less to the Father if I want my prayers to be answered. It's just this beautiful relationship between the Father and the Son. We're supposed, we're so used to being served in this world. We're so used to being served in this world. Uh, in fact, and we've talked about Chick-fil-A before and how they say my pleasure and their sense of, listen, you show up and they say it's your, their pleasure to serve you and we get so used to that and we have this expectation. Unless you're going through the drive through at Chick-fil-A. And when I ask for an unsweetened iced tea with a splash of lemonade, I rarely ever get it. 
They think a splash of lemonade, just a little bit of flavor, not too much sugar. They give me half and half. I don't want half and half. If I wanted half and half, I would have asked for half and half. I just want a splash of lemonade. And we get so used to being served. I want it my way. Well, it could be that in our prayers with God, and not in a trivial way at all, but in such a deeper, meaningful, substantive way, we ask for things that we can't imagine God not wanting to accomplish for us. God, would you heal my loved one? They're suffering so. Without your help, they're going to die. Would you heal my loved one? God, how can you not want to heal my loved one? I've spent time with people who have been praying for some time, God, take me home. I'm done with this life. My, my body has reached that spot where it is no longer a joy to be alive. I want to be at home in heaven with you. God, in your goodness, take me home now. Or maybe we've prayed, God, would you quicken the heart of my son? Would you, would you give the gift of faith to my daughter? Would you help them be, be followers of Jesus? God, how can you not want this? Would you accomplish this in their life? Or maybe we've prayed, God, would you get me out of this predicament? God, my, my marriage is just the worst experience. I never thought it'd be like this. Would you, would you fix it? Would, would you get me out of this situation? God, I, I'm, I'm addicted to this, and, and I just want to be free of that addiction. Would you free me of that addiction? God, don't you know the financial hardships I'm in? Would you simply provide that I would have enough to meet my needs? So we come to God and we ask, but Jesus invites us not so much to ask as though we're going to Chick-fil-A. I want, here's how I want it. Here's how I want it. We can always say what we want to God. But what he's inviting us to, what he's inviting us to, we can always, please hear me, we can always let our heart desires be known to God. But what he's inviting us to do in here is to ask, Jesus, I want what you want. Jesus, I want what you want. I, I, I want whatever you want to give. I, I want to pray that. I'm going to pray your heart. And I'm going to learn to pray your heart. I want, to, I want what you want in my life. That we would be hungering and thirsting for the things that Jesus hungers and thirsts for. That we would be passionate and longing and self-sacrificing for what honors and glorifies God. So how do we learn to pray for and do these kinds of works which Jesus speaks. Again, first let's acknowledge there's no magic formula. You don't have to worry, did I say those words just right? The first thing we do is to believe. We, we simply believe. It's a gift from God that we would trust. We, we would willingly trust that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus is the Lord of lords and the king of kings and we would believe we would believe that jesus has our best in mind always and that jesus is true and right 
and that Jesus is the life. I like that we sang that song, Do It Again, today. In the lyrics, it says, I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. That's believing. I'm still in your hands. This is my confidence. When we believe, then, what, what do we do? We, we build that relationship. We, we know, we tend upon, depend upon and love Christ. We, we build. That's why we have each other. We come along. Hey, did you know this about God? Hey, come with me. Let's learn to depend upon him more together. Gosh, I love seeing how you love God and, and, and dance and delight in the love that he has for you. And we learn from one another. We believe, we know, we depend upon, we love, we represent. That wherever we go, the biggest thing in our life is the love of God through Jesus Christ. It's worth denying ourselves in comparison. Our love for anything else looks like hatred. How great is the love? We represent not because we should or have to, but because this is what we've given our lives to. And this honors God. Like I said, this teaching will not fit Americanized Christianity. It just won't. Because you're, you or I, I are not the center of it. But it absolutely fits with biblical Christianity. So I have a request. Would you please help me? Like I already said, I, I've, I know I'm infected with Americanized Christianity uh, myself. And I need your help. So would you please help me? And let's have this shared expectation that God will do amazing, God-glorifying things in us and around us and through us. And that we are not doomed to play, play at Christianity until our lives end. Far from it. In fact, Jesus put it this way. Truly, truly, I say to you, Northminster congregation, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he and she do. This will happen because I died on the cross for you and now reign with my Father in heaven. Whatever you ask, Northminster congregation, in my name, this I will do, that my Father may be glorified in the Son. In fact, Northminster congregation, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful that indeed you have given Christ into this world. And Jesus, we thank you that you are the one who showed us love, that you loved us, that you gave your life for us, that we would be alive in and through you, that you have called us into your mission, that you have called us to be your people in this world, that you want to transform us fully and have given yourself to that good work. And so as we come to this meal today, we come not simply looking for a, a, a neat experience. We come committed to you because of your grace. We come because we love you, we trust you, we believe in you. And that we are called into amazing work for your glory in this world. And that this meal lets us know it's it, it, such an experience of grace in this meal that it, it, it reminds us of this wonderful thing you've done in us and this wonderful thing to you which you've called us. That you are the God, the God who takes whoever we are 
and does incredible things as we stand upon your shoulders. So set this bread aside, set this juice aside, that, that all of this would be for your glory. We consecrate ourselves, we set ourselves aside for dining with you today. We give you praise in Christ's name, amen.